I just never kind of expected that I'd be entitled to a whole lot. So my narrative was like, you got to fight, you got to crawl every inch, you got to struggle, right? And it was always my narrative too, was my parents told me, just get good grades and then get a good job. Truth is the way money works, that's not really what it's about. Just having a job will never truly get you financially ahead. It's about being a creator. It's about being an entrepreneur. It's about mapping your own destiny. Back to that notion of like, if life is an art form, it's not taking someone else's art class. It's taking those art classes, but mashing them up and figuring out your own medium, your own voice. So really, everyone's true job is to be an entrepreneur in their own way, to figure out their own voice, their own medium, starting from their own purpose and their own values, their, their why. And then from there, like an entrepreneur, be creative about how you can attract money. That's Tim Chang. And this is episode 334 of Wellness Force Radio. Wellness Force Radio. Rediscover the physical and emotional intelligence to live life well. You can have the same brain states as someone who's done an hour of meditation every day for 40 years. There's a lot of losses that we go through, so the ability to be able to cope with those losses is very important to build skill in it. Because loss will happen. You know, you have to have spiritual courage to really grow spiritually because... If you really want to take guidance from your soul, you have to be ready to realize that many of the things that you're asking for guidance on, your ego has some kind of an addiction to or an investment in. This episode is brought to you by my friends, your friends at Cured. They live in Colorado. They make this organically farmed, 100% organically farmed, full spectrum hemp. If you've been dealing with elbow issues or joint pain or digestion, or like a lot of us right now, with the world being in utter chaos, it really is, but the light is coming. That's a whole different conversation. We're talking about how to calm down. How do we calm down? There's many tools. My favorite, one of my favorite tools is CBD. Not just for nighttime calm, but also for taking care of my gut health. I notice when I take the cured full spectrum organic hemp, I put it under my tongue for 60 seconds, then I swallow it. About 20 minutes later, I get this like warm kind of fuzzy feeling like I'm being held by a grandmother in my stomach. That's what feels good to me. And I also like how it feels when I sleep. If you've been having trouble sleeping, if you've been dealing with anxiety right now, like so many people, give Cured a test drive. They're going to give you a huge savings. You get 15% off at wellnessforce.com forward slash cured. 15% off of all your CBD products, wellnessforce.com forward slash cured. Make sure you use the code wellnessforce. Share that with as many people as you can. Wellnessforce is the code to save 15% off at wellnessforce.com forward slash cured. They hook up the show, by the way. They're part of why this podcast exists. So make sure that if you're already looking for quality organically farmed CBD, you hook up our friends at Cured because they're hooking you up too. Now let's get into the podcast. Hey, welcome back to the show. It's Josh Trent. Welcome to Wellness Force. If it's your first time here, allow me to digitally hug you. If you've been listening for a long time, I just want to say thank you. This has been the ultimate journey, hasn't it been? 2015 in July, we started this show. And if you're just joining us, or if you don't know this, this is kind of a fun fact. I started Wellness Force because I had reached a spiritual wall. I had reached a emotional, physical, and spiritual wall where my life was not working. My finances, my relationships, my health, like everything was the complete opposite of the surrendering to the intelligence and the discovering of that intelligence that we all love and we all bond with now on Wellness Force. I was not in a place where I am now. I knew that I wanted to do something, but I knew it wasn't sitting in the cube doing someone else's dream. Can you relate? If you can relate to this, if you have been feeling not not just the change in our society, because there's a huge podcast that I'm going to be coming out with, a solo podcast on, on what I think is actually occurring with coronavirus and with everything else. But if you have been feeling in your own personal path, maybe you're a health and wellness enthusiast, or maybe you're just someone that is tired of living someone else's dream. I am going to be supporting business owners that are in health and wellness, conscious entrepreneurs that are looking for a way out of this broken system. We're all seeing it now. Projections of 40 million people being out of work. Things do not look bright, but the light is on the way, I promise. The light is on the way because the Chinese symbol for crisis has two symbols. It's two parts. I learned this in a documentary that was called Finding Joe. The first part is crisis means danger. And the second part of crisis is opportunity. So that's where we're at. Yes, we're in a lot of danger. And yes, there's a lot of opportunity. If you would like to turn your life in a new direction and stop living other people's dreams, message me. 
one at wellnessforce.com. That's the number one at wellnessforce.com. I want to connect with you. I want to help you grow your business. If it's a podcast, if it's you stepping out, like this is the call I'm getting. I'm getting this buzz in my chest just talking about it. This is the time, my friends, this, what we really need, this medicine, this consciousness, this compassion, this is what our guest is talking about with us on the show today. His name is Tim Chang. He is a brilliant speaker. I met him last year at the Awaken Future Summit with the crew from Consciousness Hacking. They're basically at the convergence of psychedelics, technology, and mindfulness. Well, Tim Chang, he manages millions of dollars for Mayfield. Mayfield focuses on social science-based businesses, quantified self, and really conscious capitalism. Tim's really fascinating. You're going to love his out-of-the-box thinking to Silicon Valley. He does not represent the normal Silicon Valley mindset that we've all learned to kind of be a little bit abrasive. He is something different. He's a breath of fresh air. He also leads the funding for Trip. It's a mind-altering technodelic. It's a VR company. This guy's a musician. He's a body and consciousness hacking enthusiast. This is going to be one beautiful audio experience. In this show, we'll talk about with Tim uncovering what we stand for to lead us to our why, how money can actually be a tool to help humanity, why wealth and money is just a tool, and how your possessions can come to possess you, why Tim looks to purge himself from possessions, why our first job is to get out of scarcity. When we get out of a poverty and scarcity mindset, we can start taking real radical ownership from our lives. And we'll also talk about getting rid of the fear of money by simply talking about it. It's just a tool. It's just energy. Now, corporations, they take money and use it in an unconscious way, but there is conscious corporations out there that are actually serving humanity. Businesses aren't just here to make a profit. What for-profit businesses can be doing for their communities is leading from a moral compass, leading from a heart-based compass. We're going to explore all these things and so much more with the one and only Tim Chang right here on Wellness Force. And don't forget, if you're interested in going on your path, write me, one at wellnessforce.com. That's the number one at wellnessforce.com. Now let's dig in with Tim. Cool. I got you. Well, um, I always ask people this, um, truly embodied gratitude on the show, just to give you a quick 10 minute synopsis, but this is where we explore physical and emotional intelligence, um, to likes of which you have deep expertise in both. But I do believe that with the physical and the emotional, there's also a realm of higher power or spiritual, however you want to label it, however you want to compartmentalize it. So in the nexus of these three, I believe is wellness. And so we explore this concept of intelligence on the show and intelligence is not how smart you are. Right. And so this is what we're going to explore today. Um, the one thing that I want to ask in that same vein though, is gratitude. You know what, if you had to put a a finger on it. If what, what gratitude do you actually feel today? Um, that's visceral, that's palpable. Yeah. In this specific moment right now, mm-hmm. you know, gosh, where to start it. It's like, uh, a multi-dimensional layer of things that you could be grateful for. And I think it starts with noticing those things. Cause when you tune into all the wonder there is in each moment, it just unfolds so many different layers to be even grateful for, which starts with just even noticing it. Um, I have this kind of <laughs> metaphor I use is maybe it's not about that the glass is half full or half empty. It's that, oh my God, there's a glass and holy cow, there's <laughs> yeah. water and that you can even put water in the glass. Mm. And that itself is a pretty major miracle as opposed to a glass being half full or half empty, if that makes sense. Damn, and I so love that's it. That's sort of what I mean by you, yeah. there's infinite layers of things to have wonder for the fact that we're even embodied in this human form, that you can take a breath and within each breath, between each breath is a veritable lifetime potentially if you're inhabiting it fully, right? Um, um, and, and so, you know, on the surface levels, it's things like, wow, I have my health, that I, I don't have to worry about my housing, that the basic layers of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is satisfied. There's, you know, the, the blue sky, um, there's the nature around us, there's the people and the connections we have, all those basic things to be noteworthy of, let alone, you know, the, the marvels of the technology and tools we have at our disposals. Yes. The fact that you and I can have this deep conversation remotely, you know, over pixels on a screen, right? So even those things, um, are worth taking note of. 
Um, another analogy I like to use is what's kind of interesting about today's video games, they're so advanced, these, especially these sandbox games, uh, even though they're geared for you know highly violent activities and things whatnot. But if you just stroll around the world of games like Red Dead Redemption, just riding around on a horse, it's actually almost just as much fun to note the details of the leaves and the trees and the nature and the sounds of the, the hoofs of the horse as it trots along. Like even that's pretty wondrous, let alone the main game line uh, story. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect uh, sense. And I yeah. love, I love your reflection because sometimes I get the sense that, and many people we've had on the show share this, whether they see it through a lens of psychedelic therapy or just whether mm-hmm. we're kind of marveling in the mystery, Tim. And that is, are we possibly in a simulation or a video game right now? Cause man, it sure feels like it sometimes. What's your take on that? I have my pocket theory, which is what if we are just the 3D creature simulations of four-dimensional beings trying to figure themselves out because, after all, what do we do? We try to understand ourselves and replicate ourselves by modeling out 2D objects, right? Uh, We have, of course, uh, they're represented in 3D, uh, but it's typically on flat surfaces like screens, um, right? Uh, So I'd imagine that even those four-dimensional beings, they are themselves creations and and, uh, simulacra of five-dimensional beings trying to figure themselves out and on and on up the chain, right, of dimensional space so it's like kind of that version of the the simulation version of the joke it's turtles all the way down (laughs) (laughs) one of the things that i'm uh i'm very enamored with you is your style of speaking like you have a deep academic background and by the way your story which i want to explore i mean you went from the automotive to the product management then to the vc which that's not the traditional path i mean just that alone makes me curious about how you operate with such integrity and honestly such warmth in an industry where it's all about zeros and ones, dollars and cents, cutthroat. I mean, it's it's absolutely insane. Uh, the people that I've known that have been in Silicon Valley and just that whole industry in general. Like to me, Tim, you seem like you are a breath of fresh air for that um, nexus of those things. What What is it about you that allows you to breathe that way? That's really kind of you to say. I don't, I don't know if I can fully live up to that. I, I try. I think a whole lot of um, humiliating defeats, stepping in a lot of potholes, making yeah. lots of mistakes, um, a lot of feeling like an outsider to the system, having a non-traditional background. Uh, and in the end, probably a whole lot of surrender. And what I mean by that is learning to surrender this attachment to my own story of who I am or uh, surrendering this attachment of like anything that's been successful for me was because of my smarts or my doing, Mm. you know, Um, it's both freeing, but also very humbling sort of, you know, I'm probably more the beneficiary of a lot more luck than I'd like to admit. And um, uh, probably for me, the last five years was, uh, again, that big part of surrendering that uh, attachment to outcome and the story of who uh, who I thought I had to be, you know, like ambitious, successful VC guy or something. And there was a lot of weight and burden in that role. And I realized I was creating this hefty weight on myself. I was the author of that narrative. Um, And I guess I've really flipped around a lot back to the video game simulation analogy that, okay, maybe this is all video game simulation. doesn't mean it's pointless. And it doesn't mean that even though you don't believe in the point system or winning just to acquire points and badges anymore, that you can't play to have fun. And so if anything, I maybe have changed my North Star or my my win condition um, in this game, which is maybe it's not about accumulating points and badges, but maybe it's to play uh, like an art form. And so that's been my biggest reframing is that maybe there's no point to life other than it's just like art. Art exists just for the sake of expression. There's no point to it. There's not necessarily a career you need to build. It's just to find your own voice, your own medium, and and just make art, you know? Wow. But but yet you also are the managing director of Mayfield, a 50, 60-year-old mega, mega organization. So... I would, I would assume, I'm curious how you can provide us your take on this. Like I would assume that'd be difficult to have that kind of outlook and that kind of introspection. And honestly, this, again, this breath of fresh air, I just keep feeling this from you. How do you maintain that in an industry where it is about bottom line zeros and ones, and at times can be very cutthroat? 
It, it can. And I think you have to have faith that what it's really about is, again, back to this notion of as an artist, there's room for all kinds of art. The key to success is not emulating someone else's style or being looking over your the rear view mirror, look, looking over your shoulder. What, what are they doing? Who's behind me? Who's out to get me? But just refining your own voice and being in alignment to what your mission, your purpose, your style is. There's probably room for infinite styles of investment or, or artists provided uh, each person finds their own voice, right? Yeah. And that that's what I've been thinking uh, and learning more in this field is that um, rather than being paranoid about competition, it's more, what do I stand for? Why am I doing this? We obsess so much over the who and the how much and the what and the specifics, but rarely do we ask the why. And um, something I found in, in my 20-year career as a VC was anything I thought was a slam dunk, any formula I had for success always got shattered. Anything that was more out of curiosity or a sense of play or wonder or even a flyer was the thing that took off. And so I think that was also deeply humbling. And what I realized too is maybe it matters more the why am I investing in this? And if it's not just for the ones and the zeros and the dollars and the points on the board, but if it could be more in service to something, then perhaps that is a better orientation. And when I mean service, I think in my earlier days, I, I just cared about putting points on the board. I was living out of scarcity, out of fear, just trying to prove I could make it in this tough yeah. industry. Um, and then over time, I gave up trying to copy what competitors were doing or keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak, and more just like, what do I stand for? What interests me? And then with that came a question of what best serves uh, people, what best could serve humanity. So these days, a question I ask a lot more even, will this be profitable? Could this be a unicorn? Is actually, is this good for humanity? Is this good for the planet? You know, um, So uh, it, imbuing that sense of like, yes, it is a for-profit business and there's fiduciary responsibility, but underlying that, can you be of service with for-profit business? Can business be a change, a force of change for good? Can it create things that provide more meaning, more love, more empathy, more connection, uh, can be better for the planet? Um, I don't know. I, I still want to believe you do well by doing good. Mm-hmm. And so that really underscores what I look at these days. And I think that's given me a breath of fresh air that it helps me tune out all the noise, missing out on the next TikTok or whatever, to just look at it like, yeah, that could be profitable. Is it good for people? Is <laughs> yes. it really good for people? Ah, such a great question. And this is what strikes me about you is, um, and really like I'm, I'm flashing back to Awakened Futures that in San Francisco where I first saw you spoke and the way that you talked about the new version, the new paradigm of capitalism, of conscious capitalism, you strike me as a philosopher. I mean, I feel like you're a philosopher first. You talk about consciousness a lot in media, but then also this is why I think you are that breath of fresh air. You're in a world of money. The nexus of philosophy, consciousness, and money, who would have thought that there'd be someone there to be a beacon of truth? Like to me, that is what the world needs right now. Like how do you grow your narrative in the media? Obviously podcasting is one thing, but um, how do you grow this narrative of consciousness and really being a force of good for the world using money? Right, right. And your question is really valid because it's always been assumed capitalism creates trauma and it has over history and that money is the root of all evil. But what if we view it like technology? It's not good or bad objectively. It's just a tool. So then the only root question is what is your energy? What's your intention with which you yield these tools? Right. And that is the inner work of looking at yourself. So that's why I, I do keep introspecting a whole lot. What I realize is that there's no work or sorry, there's no separation between work and play uh, as well as work and personal. There's no work life balance because your work is a reflection of who you are in life and your inner work. Um, as within, so expressed without. So it all stems from how you are on the inside. If your energy is nervous or insecure or jittery or fearful, you will express that in all your interactions with your teammates at work, with your customers, with your with your spouse, right? And so that gets transmitted outwards. So the real work starts with the deepest personal work, understanding your own attunement, your core wounds, how you've integrated those, your shadow sides, your biases, your lineage, because that will express out in all that you do. And that actually has given me kind of a lens through which to view business and, and yeah. also founders. I think all businesses, all organizations are an expression of the founders and the management's inner energy. And so if you tune into that, that's truly what shapes culture and values. And so ultimately, the, the real questions are, who are you and, and what's your why inside? Because that will resonate and shape everything else that you do. 
if you see money as energy, and I love what you said, because if somebody's energy is a signature that's painted all over the company, it's how they live with their wife or their husband, or it's how they live mm-hmm. their life. Mm-hmm. Money is energy. You know, it yes. could it could be that simple for so many. Yet, Tim, there's this pain body that I think yep. so Eckhart Tolle talks about this, the rippling of the pain body. And, and with money specifically, I think so many men and women have just a wound around money. Like, have you ever had that in your life? And, and how did you get through that if you did? I uh, grew up, you know, the, the son of uh, immigrant academics. We didn't have a whole lot growing up. My first housing was graduate school dorms, housing. I don't think I was a planned child, actually, uh, when my parents were young, you know, and, uh, doctorate students. Um, and so kind of grew up uh, without having a whole lot. So you know, there was that trauma growing up. I remember going to elementary school and getting teased by other kids because, you know, they had little um, horses and, and polo people on the, on their shirts and I had little dragons from Sears Roebuck or whatever. And so, you know, I, that was some of my first memories of understanding what money trauma was. I yeah. couldn't afford nice clothes like the other kids had and always was like, wow, what's wrong with me? And so, um, I think, you know, there was a part of me that wanted to avoid money thinking like, well, I didn't have it. I had to earn things on my smarts and hard work, you know, screw them. Right. But, uh, and then there was a part of me that then later shifted, like, I wonder if I could make money if I tried to, um, as a curiosity of, could I get it? Um, I always wanted to view myself as not money oriented, but then there was a part of me that thought, well, Money doesn't necessarily buy happiness, but it can afford some freedom and maybe some, especially freedom from scarcity mindset potentially, yeah. right? So I, I have always thought about this then. I'd like to acquire money, but as a, as a tool and a resource to amplify back out to others. And so what I think most about money these days is how to actually give it away in the most impactful way, how to have it be an evergreen asset to amplify it back out. And personally, I I hope to die with zero in the bank. Um, But what I'd like to do is have as much amplified impact with that to pay it forward. So my new view of it is this money was never for me. I'm just a steward of it to try to reamplify it back out and do as much good as I can during my time here. It was nice to prove that I could make it and generate it. Now I don't have to worry about that in the sense of like, I know how it's generated and created, but now it's sort of great. What positive energy can we apply towards it? There had to have been a massive shift inside of you, or maybe it was cumulative that led to a tipping point where you started to actually see money in the way you've just described. What was that? Yeah, it took a while. It was... I'll be candid. It was like making that first million or two because I never, ever thought I would have achieved that in my life. You know, just like that was such an abstract amount to me. Um, And then to hit it and to realize that's not such a big deal. It's just a tool. Mm-hmm. And money begets money, and it's a tool to create more of it. Um, yes, you could be on the rat race of just accumulating more of it, but why? And you know, I went through a phase of um, accumulating, you know, shiny toys, and you know, I, I got a Tesla, and I was like, oh, it's cool to have a nice car. And then the big awakening too was like, oh my God, your possessions come to possess you. And I just noticed <laughs> yes. the amount of headaches that all these things had. Big houses, you got to fill them with furniture. You nick the wall, and you're like, damn it, I got to fix that. You know, um, you have a nice car, you're more worried about it getting dented and enjoying it. And so, you know, these days I'm just thinking about how do I purge my possessions? How do I give them away? How do I donate them? How do I loan them to the community? How do I get others to get more benefit out of them than me? So I think a big part of this has been freedom from the burdens that possessions and money can create for you. Yeah. Trying to get to that. When you speak about this, you know what I feel is I feel that just in my community here in Southern California, you know, San Diego's close to Los Angeles. Los Angeles and New York are considered to be like the epicenters of creation in the United States. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people that are in these areas, LA and New York specifically, money is king. Money is Mm -hmm. everything. I mean, it becomes this golden carrot that people just chase for a lifetime. And then if you look at the books on the regrets of dying, it wasn't ever about like more time spent at the office or more money that they made. Yet there is this sweet spot, you know, there's this Goldilocks zone where I think most people want to be Tim. And that is leading a life of purpose, making enough money to be outside the lower levels of the Maslow's triangle, but then also taking care of pursuits of creativity and enjoyment and love and connection. Like what are the ingredients to that for us here in this model? Modern world? Great, great question. Um, 
You know, I used to say everybody's first quote unquote job is just get out of scarcity so that you can at least have, you know, maybe a good living and have more room to be abundant to find your form of play and then find out how to turn that play into service. And a couple ways to do that. It could be accumulation uh, of money, um, but it could also be simplifying your life. You know, um, I think there's a shift towards living in community, intentional communities, co-living. That's another way to do it. So instead of everybody trying to get their own white picket fence and McMansion and have their own car, you know, Maybe living in community like how humans were wired to be in tribes and villages before is a way to provide connection and reduce that individual financial burden. Like these days, I think a lot about, I don't know if I want to buy anything or have possession unless it can be shared with others, unless it's for like group use, you know, yeah. like like that that would be more pleasing than having it for myself, right? And so I, I could see a return to more intentional communities, the co-living um, where you're sharing assets, you're raising kids together, um, you know, not worried about just maximizing your own space and, and your own yeah. set of possessions. So that could be one uh, on reducing that cost structure. Um, there's also a demand for people to be more nomadic, you know, like they're global nomads that are working more digitally and remotely. Um, but uh, another thought I had too was that perhaps if you're really tuned into your form of play and your form of service, that you'll attract um, that that income. It'll almost be a happy byproduct of all these other things that you're tuned with. That That's my hope. It's not always that way because I have a lot of friends who are brilliant healers and artists and, yes. and, and, and poets and they have fear of money. They don't necessarily feel entitled to ask for it or to be paid for what they're worth. And so that's something I try to do in mentorship on the side is this coaching of like, you don't need to have this poverty consciousness. There's no need to ascribe to the narrative that you don't deserve money or that it will corrupt you completely. So then where does that actually come from, Tim? Does it come from lineage? Does it come from past life? I mean, is it epigenetically enforced in the brain? Is Is it activating our default mode network so we're constantly seeking out evidence that we're in scarcity? I think it's because capitalism has had centuries of traumatic effects, um, you know, in the pursuit and accumulation of that money feared uh, based on fear and scarcity mindset. And so people have been victimized and traumatized by that. And so the response is, I don't want money. It'll be corrupting at all levels. I just want to avoid the system altogether. (sighs) But perhaps it's not so much that answer as, again, seeing it as just energy and a tool and being super clear with your own energy of how you would wield it and and how um, that you could attract it and um, generate more with it, but deeply aligned with your purpose. I think if you don't have that clear attunement of with yourself and what you stand for, then yes, it could be corrupting. Yeah. I just got a full body chill. I know everyone watching and listening did too, because money has been the topic for so many people. When I've worked with clients, even in my own life, you know, to, to break 10 K a month was like a godsend to me. I never thought it'd be mm-hmm. possible. <laughs> just to make $10,000 a month. And then once I broke through that, I'm like, okay, well, I just, I just, that's my baseline now. I'll never get lower than that because I know it's possible. Do do you feel like in the same way in therapy, Jordan Peterson talks about this systematic desensitization where we go to the thing that scares us. We systematically Mm -hmm. train our psychology, our synapses to be able to handle that load. Could money be the same thing? What would systematic desensitization look for allowing money in? Great question. Um, So there's a couple effects that are kind of interesting is that, uh, you know, if you give, if you double somebody's paycheck, they somehow always automatically double their spending of it. So it's sort of like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Our, our, um, mindset, the cost of living creep, right? Yeah. It it gets adjusted to that salary level. And somehow with that spending just floats up in line with it. It's just human nature. It happens all the time. I Mm -hmm. see it with companies too. When they get a a ton of funding, they just suddenly start spending more on fancy artwork in the hallways and in all sorts of like, you know, gourmet catering. And just, it's, it's that notion that you fill your expenses uh, to match that level of that income, regardless of your attempt at discipline, right? So that's one form of desensitization to it. Um, There's a similar parable on on bandwidth. If you had like 6G networks of bandwidth, we'd find ways to use all that bandwidth tomorrow, you know, streaming VR or something else like that, right? So we'll always use, we'll always take as much as we can get. And so part of that is figuring out where does that come from? What is that longing? What is that hunger? Um, How do we uh, let go of that a bit and and uh, base it more on you know what do you actually need what what is it that uh, truly serves you um I will say this is a bit of a disease, even in the venture capital investment management side, the way the structures are set up, you take this um, fixed percentage management fee, typically 2% of the assets you manage, and you take this 20% profit share. It's called the two and 20 model, right? But if you were working on just, hey, 
I'm just going to give you 2% of however much man, money you manage, then isn't your incentive to manage as much money as possible, right? right. As opposed to being based off a of budget. And I've always found that so weird in, in even the investment world is why is it just this arbitrary flat 2%? I suspect actually, historically, it's just because some of the first people to manage money, you know, their investors say, all right, what kind of fee do you want to take? And they're like, I don't know, how about 2%? Okay, sounds good. And it just stuck, you <laughs> yes, know, this yes, sort of yes, anchoring yes. effect. And, and just very rarely do we just ask, why is it that way? And go back to first principles and say, hmm, maybe we should do this on a budget as opposed to just like 2% off the top. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you're, you're such a emotionally intelligent man because the way that you self-reflect in all phases of your life, you know, health, wealth, I'm sure relationships, not just relationships with others, but relationships with you, with yourself. What can you share about this self-reflection aspect and I want to go back to the money piece because I just feel like there's a residue there still for somebody with us, for somebody listening. If somebody has that pain body that they feel or that limiting belief that they actually feel, what are the thoughts and the beliefs that you've seen, not just maybe in your own life, but just in general around money that people could possibly identify with and let go of? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, it's something I wrestle with a lot. I didn't come from a whole lot growing up, but ironically, my family lineage had some pretty um, prestigious folks in their background. We got cut off from that when my family uh, immigrated to the U.S., um, but I just never kind of expected that I would be entitled to a whole lot. So my narrative was like, you got to fight, you got to crawl you every gotta inch. Yeah. You got to struggle, right? And it was always my narrative too was my parents told me, just get good grades and then get a good job. Truth is, the way money works, that's not really what it's about. Just having a job will never truly get you financially ahead. It's about being a creator. It's about being an entrepreneur. It's about mapping your own destiny. Back to that notion of like, if life is an art form, it's not taking someone else's art class. It's taking those art classes, but mashing them up and figuring out your own medium, your own voice. So really, everyone's true job is to be an entrepreneur in their own way, to figure out their own voice, their own medium, starting from their own purpose and their own values, their their why. Um, and then from there, at, like an entrepreneur, be creative about how you can attract money. Mm. I've had an idea too, which is that what you do to earn money doesn't have to tie to what you do for work necessarily. In my life, I originally wanted to be a performing artist. I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to be an actor until I realized trying to make a living off of that is really, really hard. It could, the stress um, of that could potentially kill the love for the craft. It did. I yeah. had a band that we were booked as the house uh, band at the Hard Rock Hotel in Bali. Dream gig, you know, being flown there, being in residence, playing until I realized, oh my God, I have to play Tracy Chapman's Give Me One Reason seven times a night <laughs> and let the audience sing, you know, right. come up on stage. And I was like, I hate playing music for yes. money. You know, that yes, just destroyed yes. my love for it altogether. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm lucky now I have a day job that does okay, but I'm more active in music now than ever yeah. because I'm freed from having to generate income from it. Mm. I have a question I have to ask you because yeah. in the creation of this lifestyle, and I love yeah. how you're explaining it, the entrepreneur who finds their love and this new concept of not making money mm -hmm. by doing something yeah. that you love so you can afford yeah. the space to do what you love. Don't yeah. you believe that there is an energy bleed though? Because in order to really create and, and really be in that place of abundance and revenue, to me, in my experience, and I'm open to this changing, it takes mm. so much energy and chi from us to generate that, that I could almost think that one might have such a hard time creating that, that disparate space between earning money so one can fuel their dream versus having their dream be the way they make their money. Yeah. Can you go That's, into that yeah, a little totally bit? It's totally true. That's a great, great example. Um, this is something I've been working with some friends on to try to create more money literacy. It's Here's the weird part about money. It's not taught in schools. I went to Stanford Business School. They didn't really teach us how to manage personal finances. Are or, you or, kidding or, me? No, it's just not. It's also a taboo topic. That just and blows so my mind. I've been trying to get friends together to literally have financial hacking dinner salons and just open source talk about it. Open the kimono. It's like, hey, what do you do with your money? What do you invest in? How do you manage it? And just crowdsource and share the learnings. It's the weirdest thing that we don't talk about it. And mm. it's probably the thing we need to teach children and yeah. each other about and artists and healers and folks that are dedicated to their craft more and more about first, get rid of the taboo that money is bad, it's damaging. And then second, increase the literacy of like, this is the way money operates. These are different models for it. These are different ways you invest it. This is how it compounds. These are different business models and revenue streams that can come with it. So it's um, just 
getting rid of the fear and then showing people, hey, there's many ways to do it. You kind of hack some of them together. In fact, you can kind of mixtape them together. So you have this revenue stream from here and that kind of, you know, is a um, complement to this other revenue stream there. So it's, it's a creativity of a different form, recognizing that it's just a tool, it's just an energy. You don't have to be enslaved to the pursuit of it, but you could employ it um, with different structures. And, oh. um, you know, maybe we could have shared platforms and tools and knowledge that we use to help each other out because there's so many ways to actually make money out there. You can be creative even about that once the fear is gone. A philosophical question that I'd love your insight on is if energy and money are really just the same and human nature is this evolutionary curve where we're figuring out who we are really at every moment, Tim, Mm -hmm. every moment I'm figuring out who Josh Trent is. I'm I'm sure you feel the same. So with those two, with those two blended energies where, you know, money is energy, human evolution, and and the understanding of ourselves and consciousness is another. Do you think that those two will at some point in our lifetime be egalitarian? Can we make conscious capitalism in our lifetimes, something where the evilness of money is taken away? Or do you think that's That's, part of human nature where the evil will always be there? I love that question. I fundamentally believe that we have altruism baked into our genes and we can find better structures and models to do this. Case in point, I don't think for-profit businesses or models are bad inherently. It could be the way we exercise them. Another way to ask that is, where's all the profit going to? If it's just there to be consolidated in the hands of one or two people, maybe that's not the best model because that's just about (laughs) zero-sum accumulation, right? Um, What if there are for-profit models that are a little bit more regenerative that feeds uh, big chunks of those profits back in the form of donations or tithing or grants or whatnot? Could we blend the worlds of what for-profit and non-profit are? so that for-profits are more uh, responsible members of their community, more responsible members to planet Earth. Yeah, that um, shareholders and inclusive stakeholding includes even Mother Nature as an owner in the cap table, mm. or maybe future generations, or maybe um, you know disadvantaged populations, right? Because I think the realization is a company doesn't operate in a vacuum of just the management, investors, and customers. It is a member of a com- local community. It is a member of Mother Nature overall. It has a it footprint ecologically, right? And so how do we make sure that um, it's not just shareholders, but stakeholders? And this was a topic at Davos this last year, which is so encouraging, this move away from just shareholder capitalism, which is just a handful of investors, mm-hmm. more towards broader stakeholder capitalism. That's the broader community, the planet, the populations, you know, um, the ecosystems of people. That could be a way to make it more egalitarian to your question and a way to, you know, have it be more generative and benefiting more than just a couple people. With the ventures that you have, and there's so many fascinating ones. My favorite is Trip, the mind-altering uh, technodelic mm-hmm. VR company. And the way that mm-hmm. you even have another company too, the Grove uh, collaboration, Grove Collaborative, these mm-hmm. healthy products that you're giving, these healing tools that you're giving. One of the things that I used to talk about on Wellness Force for the first two years of our broadcast was wellness yep. technology, you know, the blending yeah. of the technology and actually helping humankind. And I, I then soon realized when I was on stage at CES and I was leading panels and I was understanding that so much of the driving force for unfortunately many of these companies was just the revenue. It wasn't really about, if you looked at the founders, their personal health, they weren't an embodiment of their health. And it goes back to what you said, where if there's an energy about somebody at the top, it's going to bleed to the whole company. My question for you is this, when we look at wellness technology now in 2020, what is the most, what tugs on your heart the most? What makes you the most excited about wellness technology now in 2020? Um, a couple things. I think we have a few vectors we're starting to get people aware that they need help on. Before The 80s was about physical fitness, right? And then the 2000s, 2010s have been more about um, mental wellness and, yeah. and now emotional fitness, right? Yes. Things like meditation and, and flow and those sorts of things. But I'm interested now that people realize, oh, I should sleep eight hours a day. So we're going to see rise in things like sleep coaching. We're going to see more support systems for relationships, um, family relationships and parenting as well, um, how to be better, uh, you know, parent for newborns and as well as have better dialogues with each other, mm. nonviolent communication dialogues. So I think we're going to see more use of technology and coaching meshing together to provide more support systems for humans as we try to up-level ourselves. So I'm a big believer in what I guess I would call tech augmented coaching that could use technology to help us be the aspirational versions of ourselves that we want to be. Right now, the story has been tech is making us disconnected. It's horrible. These devices are making it. Yes. Right. But again, it's a tool we could use technology to also make us better versions of ourselves as well you know and that's what i'm pretty excited about 
Uh, I love this because uh, we had Kevin Kelly on the show three months ago. And yep. he explored this concept with us about the technium. You know, technology is an expression of consciousness itself, which yes. is was fa- utterly fascinating to me because I realized that it's not the phone that makes me disconnect. It right. is my discipline and my awareness right. about mm-hmm. how I use my phone. Like, let's right. just put that out there, people. That's what's right. really going on. And so right. there are there are some things, though, Tim, and this is my question for you. There are some things when we look at the work of Charles Duhigg or even we had Near Ayal on the show. These mm-hmm. companies, Facebook and Google and Apple specifically, they hire behavioral engineers mm-hmm. to make sure that people are addicted as humanly possible. What do we do about that as a collective? It stems from the business model. The business model drives everything. Um, I have a lot of friends who work at these big platforms. They're not malicious. They're just optimizing the playbook they were handed. The Mm. first principles question is, is that the right playbook, right? And what I mean by that is these business models, when you are selling people's attention to others, by nature, you're doing cognitive strip mining on them. Right, you're taking their attention, you're fracking it and selling it out into others, farming it out to others. You're not yeah. truly serving your customer. You're giving them something fun and addictive and like a digital opioid, but you're not truly serving their true interests That's of what's right. best for them. So the next act of companies, what could unseat Facebook or or Google, is perhaps something that is truly just your advocate. That you have behavioral engineers all there trying to help you keep on the rails of the goals that you set for yourself, and that no one sees your data. But you, that it's all based on your wishes, your input with guidances and nudges throughout the day. And chances are this will not be a free advertising based model. It'll probably be more like coaching or subscription based, but it's there completely, utterly just in service to you Mm. to make you who you want to be based on your goals. What do you see that being? I mean, what's your if you could wave a magic wand, what would that look like? Here's a here's I'll paint a couple pictures for you. I've, I've yeah. used this example before, but imagine something that's kind of like Alexa, and you've got your calendar into it. It's got your top five goals um, on what you want to do lifestyle wise. Um, it studied your patterns and behaviors. Doesn't share with anyone else. It's not trying to sell you stuff. It's not selling advertising for anybody else. It's just there for you. It's maybe a coaching type subscription model, and it says, Josh, hey, I noticed you're binge watching Altered Carbon season two. It's awesome and all, but <laughs> hey, it's 11:30 p.m. You remember? How do you know together, that? It's yeah, and it would say, remember, we set together at the beginning of the year that you really want to up your sleep to seven and a half hours of quality cycles. Yeah. Um, your calendar says your first meeting tomorrow is 8 a.m. You need to go to bed now. I'm turning out part of the house. Go to bed. And so you could joke that it's like a digital nanny, but it would provide these nudges and uh, and, and maybe even take away these impulse um, temptations to help us stay on the rails of, of the goals we set for ourselves, right? The next version of this, if you remember the movie Her, um, sure. we're getting there. Apple AirPods. That's an example of hearables as a compute platform. If we had these in our ears all the time, imagine little micro nudges that it's there for you. It's not selling any of your data to anyone else. It's just there trying to be your personal pocket coach. And it says, Josh, you're having a heated argument with your um, partner right now. I notice that your phrasing starting to get a little elevated. For this next thing you're going to say, why don't you try phrasing it this way? You know, it, it imagine the benefit of like, a therapist or a relationship coach in your ear at all times. Like I would love sure, that. I've, sure. I've done so many workshops and things like Imago and nonviolent communications, and I can't remember how to access those tools in the heat of the moment when I'm triggered emotionally. Yes. I practice those in coaching and therapy sessions, but I wish I could have that nudge in real time, especially when I'm like getting pissed off at my seven-year-old daughter or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> but that'd be an example yes. of something where it's in your ear helping you with those dialogues and reframing things because I'm a huge believer. It's not what you say it's how you say it and just teaching us even re- little reframings and nudges how to say things in more effective ways makes all the difference in the world to the health of our relationships I, I really enjoy your perspective and I want to provide a different mirror too because mm-hmm. we've explored internal locus of control and external locus of control with mm-hmm. uh, specifically with the interview with near two years ago mm-hmm. and and in my opinion I, I found that in my own life when I'm connecting to community, that fortifies my values about Mm -hmm. how I eat, sleep, and move and how I believe, think, feel, and act. When I'm doing that, to Mm -hmm. me at least, it's been way more powerful than an AI or hearable or anything else. Do you feel like these tools could really just be a stepping stone for behavioral modification to get people to connect to community so they don't always have to depend on the device? That's that's what they really should be. I think these tools, these technologies are kind of like training wheels. 
to develop the sensitivity, awareness, skills, and intuition that we would call wisdom that mm-hmm. then gets embodied and, and practiced. But the learning curves of these are sometimes really hard. Yeah. And like, like you said, I do believe community and connection is the ultimate cure for depression, anxiety, disconnection, all these things. We're wired for community. So as we shift towards more intentional living structures, co-living, co-working, those will help a lot. And, um, you know, the thing is, when you do live in a community house, that can be tough too. And so perhaps sure. these tools can help us smooth our relationships in, in those areas as well, especially, yeah. you know, if they're um, really our advocates and helping us, right? So I, I think a lot about that. What is your, if you had to advocate for one thing, and I know you advocate for many, but if you were positioned in a corner and someone said, what is your number one thing in the world that you are advocating for now? Like, what is that for you? Right now, it's how do we give tools and frameworks and and support and resources to help people do this inner work so that their outer work flows from that. I now realize there's, again, no differentiation between the me to the we to the all. And so how do we start with the me, get everyone healed so that they're free to discover their form of play and then um, have them resource enough that they can put that play in service to something bigger. Um, And so really with that, uh, the way I want to figure out a structure for that is – I have this dream that we would have these ethics pledges in all different businesses, kind of like there's a Hippocratic Oath for doctors, right? What would that look like for investors? What would that look like for founders? Uh, My friend James Joaquin at Obvious Ventures helped pioneer the world positive term sheet. It's not economic terms, but it's values terms. And it's a dialogue investors have with the founders that these are values we stand for. How about you? Does that resonate with you? Which ones? If so, how? How would you bake them into um, your operating principles of the company? And then to go one step further, like Grove did, could you even put that in the charter the company like a b corp structure mm. right so i'm thinking a lot about how do we turn values and principles more from just bullshit kind of abstract you know like fortune cookie talk to things that we we really live embody and put into practice maybe even into corporate structures stakeholding structures you know ethics pledges we sign you know and and have um community peer pressure on like a positive uh, kind of culture around this Yeah. Creating the culture. That's really, I just got another full body chill because what we've created this year is we purchased breathwork.io. We have the breathe program. We're integrating the CBD vape, the safe vape technology. We're combining all of these things that are, I guess you could say trends, like what's more trendy right now than CBD. I think it's on everyone's (laughs) tongue. Right. But, but I found a way and and we work with Dr. Lynn Morsky from the plantmedicine.org. And we found that when we did do the safe vape and we combined it with the breathing, it produce so much more relaxation and so much more longer creative states that I actually am looking now for somebody that might want to do a clinical study on it or somebody that might want to actually prove scientifically beyond just our anecdotal groups that we've had. And so this is what's most exciting for me too, is how do we use these ancient tools you know, community and connection is one of them. Our breath is another, the power of plants, whether it's uh, cannabidiol or whether it's ayahuasca. This is a realm that you play in so much. Can you share with us about trip? And can you also share with us about this concept that honestly is pretty brand new and it's really funding the the psychedelic movement too? You know, I think we're going going to see technologies that try to approach the edges of what these medicines uh, can provide in terms of uh, perspective shift and consciousness expansion. And those could be good training wheels into deeper self-inquiry, whether that takes you in the realm of plant medicines or meditation or, or whatnot, right? And so that's, again, can we employ technology in the service of expanding consciousness, shifting perspective, you know, kind of elevating awareness? Um, that was sort of the, the thesis behind TRIP is that could it give you some of the slight benefits, preview benefits of what an ayahuasca sitting would be like, but in a digital immersive environment. And then someday in the future, as um, these modalities get legalized, you can imagine the merging of technologies old and new from plant medicines to augmentation of journeys with um, sound, with sight, uh, with uh, haptic feedback, et cetera, to provide, you know, kind of um, additional augmentation um, for even set and setting or, you know, kind of uh, the, the healing 
healing power of these. So, you know, Adam Gazelle at UCSF and is studying the stacking of these different uh, modalities together. But I'm a big fan that uh, of this notion these are just all tools and technologies. And the fun part is as we mash them up, do more clinical studies, understand the A-B testing effects of how they work with each other, right? Someday we'll even maybe even have like um, clinically validated playlists for journeys, you know? Mm. And this is where machine learning can get real interesting because it's studying, you know, real-time biofeedback of all different people that can help with personalization, can help with understanding efficacy in different vectors. So like this can be a smorgasbord of learning between all of the biofeedback sensors we have and all these different modalities that we play with. You've been to Burning Man multiple times. How many times total? Um, probably 10. 10 times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So your journey in um, really understanding of money and potentially in these entheogens, right? And also just walking the path of being conscious about the way that you consume things and just the way that you lead your role with your company. How do you continue to maintain the North Star, the integrity piece? Like, what does that actually even mean to you um, when it comes to these psychedelic therapies? How do we maintain integrity as we fund these and as these things grow? Um, So I've been helping... um with the creation of a trade association in this field. And it's a, it's a bit of a moonshot because typically trade associations are often created after the fact, but this is an attempt, and it is called North Star actually, that <laughs> yeah. trying to create a values-aligned ethics-driven trade association in advance of the coming of that industry because already we're seeing former cannabis and crypto bros throwing psychedelic investment summit. Like, here's where to get in. Here's where to make money with the same mercenary transactional energy that kind of pervaded cannabis and crypto and to me kind of ruined those movements. Mm -hmm. We don't want to see that happen with this field because it's got so much potential. But something I think a lot about is that shouldn't we see business and commercialization take place that embodies the same values and insights that those medicines would provide connectivity, empathy, inclusivity, justice, compassion, you know, shouldn't that be the way that business is wielded with these? It's really made me think a lot about my own levels of privilege, my lineage, you know, how can I be more inclusive? How can I better foster diversity? Um, how can I make these things more accessible to more people than just the standard playbook of like, oh, we'll start with rich people. They'll help subsidize the cost curve for everybody eventually. Yeah. There's the trickle down and then there's the being with what is. And the being with what is, I feel like right now, the majority of people who are suffering and who need the most assistance and the most help are the ones that are economically impoverished. You know, those are the ones that really need the help. And so that's why with Wellness Force, and I'm curious how you feel about this with Mm -hmm. your work, this is why we really want to serve people where they actually are. Instead of like you had just said, go to the people that have the most money. I create products and I help people connect to products that are actually affordable based on the mass population, because I don't That's believe right. people can afford $2,000, $5,000 at a time, which is why we made the program $90, $97 so that people nice. can actually use this for the long term. But how do we do this? How do, how do we price things specifically when we look at trip or even yeah. the natural products delivery that you have? How do you go about pricing things so that we can yeah. help people where they are? that need it the most. I think we'll see more innovations in pricing models. There could be sliding scales. There could be buy one, give one. There'll be, you know, um, uh, PBCs, B Corps. There'll be foundations, I think, for-profit companies set up specifically to help with the accessibility part. So again, my dream is that we see the for-profit, non-profit worlds merge a bit more in terms of these hybrid models. So there's always this notion of giving back, more regenerative um, economic models in there as well. Now, I always get the criticism, well, what about like the companies like Uber who'll just do hyperscale and drive costs down to the lowest? Mm. There's always going to be that threat. Um, actually, Orin and Northstar, this group, I've been helping out, published a wonderful story called, we will call it Pala, P-A-L-A, which painted a very vivid detailed picture of if there was an uberization of, you know, psychedelic clinics and what that, the nightmare that could look like. And part of addressing this too is that we prop up new innovative models and set positive culture from the start so that you've got these templates for others to learn from versus just the typical tech bro scale fast break things at all costs kinds of sure. uh, model. I think the world is ready for that too. We've seen the effects of, you know, break things, go fast, hyperscale. I like to say instead of growth at any cost, how about, you know, health at every scale? 
you know, and health meaning viability and balance and sustainability. With this realm, what it might mean is instead of massive mega clinics that are venture funded, maybe they're local community focused um, clinics that are community funded, maybe with models more like micro lending, like Kiva or uh, my favorite, there's a great example, Steward. Um, my friend Mark Weinstein's more working with them on regenerative agriculture. It's like a crowd funding platform for independent regenerative ag farms that's got a viable business model and that also gives them tools mm. with software and technology for farmers to run their farms more effectively because you know you don't expect a farmer to go build software to manage their, sure, their sure. business could we have something similar here could there be community crowdfunding platforms for these kind of local clinics designed for universal access at sliding scale rates um, that also give software tools to help them manage these clinics better so they don't have to learn to be world-class operators at businesses you know yeah. so and also you know, Increasing the demand for just healthy organic foods in general and making them more cost effective. I mean, in the mm -hmm. same way that Uber drives the price down, don't you see the tipping point happening with this? We're doing a series with Rodale Institute called The Truth oh, About cool. Organic. And mm -hmm. so what I'm most focused on right now is how do we actually make the organic conversation something that is applicable to where people are, regardless yeah. of the economic spectrum? What are your thoughts on that? You know, I'd love to see more and more decentralization and micro farming, even at the suburban home level or city level, right? And we've got more and more tech tools that enable that, that you can grow things in small spaces, in urban places, that you get more awareness and understanding and mindfulness of where your food comes from and what it takes to produce food. So maybe it's not your whole food supply, but more and more could it be literally garden to table at smaller scales. I think this notion of decentralizing these big centralized systems is the next trend, and it's what we're going to need in an increasingly fragile centralized system yeah. that's going to be hammered on by climate change. So, you know, I live in Marin County and I think one thing interesting is that the upside of all these wildfires here, it's taught a bunch of us, you know, rich entitled people that, oh my God, climate change affects everybody, <laughs> including us. And now the, the discussion is like, huh, I wonder where my power comes from. PG&E is going to have regular outages for weeks at a time every season. Maybe I should generate some of my own power. Yeah. And then, you know, that leads to mindfulness of how much energy you consume and where it comes from. Then the next conversation is, huh, where does my water come from? Where does my food come from? So, you know, technology in this first act is we created giant centralized systems for the sake of convenience, right? But as things become more fragile and broken down with climate change and all these other effects, maybe it forces all of us to be more mindful of our inputs and outputs. And as we get more decentralized, we get more self-reliant, self-sufficient uh, on, on our own systems and maybe also doing this at a, at a community level. That's sort of my hope is that the pendulum swings the other way. And instead of convenient centralized systems that we don't even understand how they run, we become um, more self-reliant, more mindful, more resilient on, on producing um, the things we need. Do you ever get the sense that you're from the future? I, uh, I, I, I don't know. Time is this weird linear dimension, but I, I do often think to myself is like, what would my 90-year-old self say to me now? Just like yeah. what would I have said to my 20-year-old self? So I do often try to picture who I'd like to become, but I think my ultimate answer is I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, the reason I ask that is because I just get that vibe from you. Um, the way you speak and what you put out there into existence with your words as being possible is so radically different. And and honestly, again, this analogy, since we're talking about breath work and it's, it's this breath that the world needs right now. I feel like we are seeing in the wellness industry specifically, there is this return to the ancient tools, yeah. whether it's plants or breath or just traditional lifting, gathering movement or sitting in a circle and playing music or singing. Like, don't you see this, Tim? Do you see we're just returning back to what we've always done, but we're doing back it with this lens of technology. Yeah, it's true. Backwards <laughs> so, to the future. The thing is, like, people figured this stuff out millennia ago. And, yeah. you know, I, I uh, slightly known for biohacking stuff back in the day. But after all these experiments with, you know, wild supplements and crazy modalities, it just came back to what I jokingly call smile, sleep meditate, intermittent fast, have loving relationships and exercise. And the thing is, people knew that for, for millennia, right? Mm. And so it's just a, a blinding flash of the obvious to return to these healthy habits and lifestyles from before. But to your point, with a technology lens, maybe yeah. what we're able better to do is describe the mechanisms, have data to show uh, the efficacy, and more importantly, have it be reproducible and translated amongst domains. My big dream in the next five years is that we'll even have a electromagnetic spectral understanding of how things like Reiki or, um, uh, you know, acupuncture work. And because until now it's been viewed as, it's a mystery. It seems really woo. Yeah. But 
all the difference is once you know how to characterize it and measure it and reproduce it, then it's called science, right? So could will we, will we have a bridging of these worlds of East meets West, old meets new, wisdom meets, you know, technology? Um, and I think we're on the verge of that. Like these things that were formerly less understood become more understood and therefore reproducible. Everything to me feels lately like a paradox. Science exists, but if we only exist in science, there's no room for spirituality. If we only exist in spirituality, we're wearing a white robe with a purple uh, thing around our neck and we're on top of a mountain and then there's no science. And then there's, there's charlatans and there's imposters in every category. And so the navigation of truth, and this is why I was so excited to get you on the show. It's been almost a year since we met in person. And so this is so rich for me because you talked about this sleep acronym, which we'll mm-hmm. link in the show notes. We have a breathe acronym and it's beliefs, recovery, exercise, actions, thoughts that actually serve my dream, habitual feelings, and then obviously eating hydration and nutrients. So the breathe model, I I get the sense that it's from 20 years of my studies and understanding of what makes us well, that we need these things. And honestly, we are sentient beings that deserve these things. How would you describe wellness? You know, if you had to encapsulate wellness, if you had to define wellness from just everything that you're up to, man, which seems to be an incredibly exciting and, and really um, reciprocal life based on love and service. How would you define wellness if you had to define wellness? It really is that. It's not an individual vector or it's not some individual practice you do of just one thing of fitness or just what you eat. It's it's a systematic type of thing. And that's why it's so challenging for our current healthcare system because we bucket things into silos and we just look at things from different specialties, but it's all interrelated, right? Right? Like a like like Mother Nature. Mother Nature yeah. is a giant symbiotic system of things that are interrelated and all the pieces play a role from the smallest bee to the ants and everything else. I think wellness is like that as well. We've got the layers I talked about, the wellness of me, the wellness of we, the wellness of all, the whole ecosystem, um, the wellness of our habits, the wellness of our, our thoughts. They all link together, right? Perception is reality. Those shape behaviors, right? Our identity and our behaviors are interlinked too. So it's even wellness of our sense of self, our identity, um, wellness of community, uh, all these things together. You know, uh, it's it, it as within, so without. And it's all this, like I mentioned, this fractal like interlocking system of all these different roots. So it's not just one thing you go fix. It's not just go pump iron 20, you know, 20 times a week and everything else as well. Yeah. Right. But it that ties into what you eat. Are you sleeping properly? Yeah. Are you in good community? So it is a systems level problem, I think, as well. And the thing is, we've had these systems which were optimizing for just one or two vectors, like shareholder value or, you know, maximum production and consumption. And, mm-hmm. and, um, I think the lesson from nature is that everything is interrelated, interdependent, and symbiotic. And whenever you oversimplify things to just maximizing one variable, unintended consequences happen. I think that's the same for wellness. So you want this wellness at all scales, all levels. Chang for president. <laughs> we got to have you in politics so you can bring some some truth there, which I don't even know if that's possible at times. It seems like it could be. Um, but just I'm, I'm so enthralled with what you're up to. And honestly, this was such a gift to our audience and to myself, like the exploration of truly what's possible when we look at wellness through this lens and, and really this concept of intelligence that I am so committing my life to exploring is intelligence. You know, it's the gathering information. It's the Mm -hmm. applying of the information, the testing, the iteration. And then lastly, Tim, which, which I really feel like you're an embodiment of is, is the embodiment of the lessons, the practices, the tools, all the things as you say goodbye to us here, what is someone's, what can you give someone as far as guidance to properly harness their own intelligence, the, the gathering, the application and the embodiment? Like what's helped you the most on those three? Um, you know, for me, it's been not so much some of these peak experiences that might crack you open. It's really this notion of integration. And I've actually learned a lot studying the AA manuals, you know, of this integration culture and community that is so robust. Hundred years of this. It's no commercial model needed. It's decentralized. It's consistent everywhere. And what I 
kind of thought is that what AA provides is maybe what church used to or was supposed to provide. Yeah. Sense of community, accountability, witnessing, you know, um, group transformation. And so I, I, that's the thing I'm, I'm looking for and I would recommend for everyone is to have that support community, if possible, that integration community. And those folks that will they'll call you out on your stuff, just like you're there to witness and call them out and support them on their things too, right? So it's not just that Vipassana retreat. It's more, okay, great. What downloads did you get? How will you make that into your daily behavior and what support system and community do you have to hold each other accountable for then living and embodying those downloads, right? Wow. So, yeah. yeah. Tim Chame, thank you for the gifts you've given us today. And also, I just want to leave people with another thing we're going to put in our show notes. It was an interview that you did and you had this quote where you said, what does any human really want? And it was this 50 second video. And in that video, you gave <laughs> us really the recipe for every single thing that we've talked about today. And it was the answer to be witnessed, seen and heard. That right there is what I believe will be the new fuel source for wellness, for conscious capitalism, for everything in the world. And it's conversations like this that help it go that way. So thank you for coming on Wellness Force. And please let us know mm -hmm. how we can be involved in what you're doing and support what you're creating. Thank you for the work you're doing. It's an important message, an important mission, and I'm here to support you in the community. Thank you. Thank you. And where's the best place uh, that we can actually engage with you or play or just go to this community aspect with you? Do you, do you even do social media or do you play on there? Not so much anymore. Okay. I used to. And then I realized I was like, um, boy, uh, it's, it's, it creates a lot of workload for me. Right. Sure. So sure. I, I, guess um it's going to be maybe just you know email i've got a email teachang at mayfield.com is one um um i guess it could be well yeah i don't really use instagram or twitter as much anymore and trying not to be as much on on facebook but but you know um you facebook friend me you send a message there too i i do use facebook more as a messaging platform now so that mm -hmm. is a good way to just connect with folks so yeah well thank you tim for coming on and we look forward to another conversation at some point maybe in 2020 2021 just so yep. rich that's the word that comes up for me here that this this richness of conversation that you're able to hold. So thank you again for coming on. Thank you. It's such a privilege. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for listening to the show, my friend. Everything you learned on this podcast starts with your morning practices. So from over 300 world-class guests, we pulled together six simple yet powerful morning practices down into a 21-minute system guaranteeing to increase your vibration and the way that you feel every day. Get this free powerful guide over at wellnessforce.com forward slash M21. And if you love this show, share it with somebody. Share it with somebody that you love or that you care about. You can support the show easily by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Just go to wellnessforce.com forward slash review. Or if you're on your phone, just tap it, hit the link in purple that says review this podcast. And the journey does not stop here. We're continuing this discovering process in our private Facebook group over at wellnessforce.com forward slash group. You can be a part of it. You already are. All you have to do is join us at wellnessforce.com forward slash group and I will welcome you at the door. Now go out into your life and live your life well. And until I see you again real soon, I'm wishing you love and wellness.